You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. Imagine it's 1942. You're a four-year-old child in Budapest, Hungary, when your father is constricted into a Jewish labor battalion. You never see your father again. In 1944, your mother is taken away. She survives the horrors of a concentration camp, but is so weak someone has to bring her home in a wheelbarrow. You run back into the house because you believe there is no way the flesh and bone human in the wheelbarrow could be your mother. Thus was just two episodes in the young life of Holocaust survivor Robert Bob Rotoni during World War II. His book, From Darkness Into Light, My Journey Through Nazism, Fascism, and Communism to Freedom, is broken down into five journeys through the freedom he now enjoys in America. Bob, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Pete, for inviting me to your radio program to talk so about I'm glad to book. have you. Yeah, glad to have you. Bob, your book fits the generic category of biography. But your title, subtitle, and graphic design suggest to the reader much more than that. Can you tell us about this briefly? I'll try. My book is not just a memoir of the first 26 years of my life. It is also a narrative of historic events in the middle of the 20th century. World War II, the Holocaust, hardcore Stalinist communist dictatorship, a bloody uprising in Hungary, and the subsequent dangerous escape to freedom. I wanted to use my eyewitness accounts of events to teach something more important than just telling about my early life story. In hindsight, decades after these events took place, I wanted to tell my readers important conclusions reached and lessons learned and to pass these on to future generations of young people. As a young person, I experienced the human capacity for love, kindness, and self-sacrifice, as well as hate and cruelty. I came to a conclusion, Pete, that there is good and evil in every human heart, and there is only a thin line that separates those two. I learned the importance of family and having a role model to provide guidance on what is important to grow up and be a responsible, sensible, and sensitive person. I learned that pain and suffering in childhood or how poor you, poor you are growing up need not have a negative impact on your self-esteem. I learned that socialism and communism are failed utopian ideologies, and history has proven that they always end in misery, not to mention the moral corruption that inevitably results from a totalitarian dictatorship. I learned the importance of setting goals, taking risks, working hard, and delaying gratification to achieve those goals. I also learned that good luck, being at the right place at the right time, has a lot to do with success. Being an immigrant in Canada and then in the U.S., I learned how to start out with no material possessions, not even speaking English, and end up as an educated, productive member of society in a few years. These are the lessons and conclusions I reached and hope to pass on to my children, grandchildren, and now to the general public with the publication of my book. Okay. You mentioned our conversations that the urge to write the book was intensified by the birth of your grandchildren. Tell us a little bit about your motivations to write the book. Well, the truth is I never intended to publish a book. After my second grandson was born in 2002, I wanted to write down a few important and interesting stories for two reasons. First, to acquaint my grandchildren with their Jewish-Hungarian roots. And second, to five stories I call journeys, which make up my book, I wanted to pass on to them the important conclusions and lessons I mentioned earlier. Publishing my stories in a book is the unintended consequences 
of first becoming a public speaker about the Holocaust in 2011. Students and adults who heard my story wanted to know how a seven-year-old child survivor of the war and the Holocaust ended up in America and became a successful professional. I was frequently asked if I'd publish my stories, and my answer was always no. I always said that my stories were for my family and close friends and not for the general public. It was only two years ago I decided to publish my stories after I convinced myself that there is a demand for it. Yeah, absolutely. How did a engineer-trained successful business executive become a public speaker delivering thousands of talks on the Holocaust 60 years after the events? Well, uh, this transformation came about when a close friend of mine here in Atlanta, a member of the Atlanta Northside Baptist Church, learned about my Holocaust story. We worked together for years. We socialized. He knew how old I was, that he knew that I was Jewish and that I was from Hungary. But he never put two and two together that I was a Holocaust survivor, and I never spoke about it. He read my story. And after he did, he asked, and I quite frankly, reluctantly agreed to speak to his church members in 2010. That was almost 11 years ago. Because of that speech, the word got around in the Atlanta Jewish community that I was a child Holocaust survivor. And since then, I have spoken to thousands of students and many adult groups on behalf of the Georgia Commission on the Holocaust, the Breedland Holocaust Museum, educational institutions, and several civic organizations like yours, the World War II Roundtable. That is how my new career as a public speaker developed for the past 10 years. All right. Uh, how was the experience writing your book different from talking to a live audience? I mean, did you find writing liberating or exhausting or both? Well, uh, writing my five stories first, which was more than 10 years ago now, and then seamlessly integrating them into the book was a challenge, both physically and emotionally, particularly when I wrote the story of the Holocaust. I traveled extensively around the world to interview the then-living family members in Australia, in England, in Hungary, in Israel, and Canada. I also did extensive research for my stories to provide an accurate historic context for the stories. Writing was also somewhat of a cathartic experience because in my family, all of them survivors, we never spoke about the Holocaust. It was like taboo. And I never confronted myself with my deep-seated emotions that were locked away in my subconscious mind. Speaking, particularly about the Holocaust, was emotionally difficult because I discovered that the wounds of the Holocaust never heal. The images are frozen in my mind and I will carry them to the end of my days. I think that's understandable. All right, you, your book is broken down into basically five journeys. Now let's talk about journey one. Um, the Holocaust had devastating effects on you and your family. However, as the book attests, the hardship of being Jewish in Hungary started decades before World War II. How did anti-Semitism affect you and your family prior to the German invasion of Hungary in March of 1944? Well, that's a good question, Pete. Anti-Semitism existed in Hungary long before I was born. The first European anti-Semitic law in the 20th century was passed by the Hungarian parliament in 1920. It was called, and I quote, numerous clauses, two Latin words meaning closed number. It limited the number of Jewish students who could enter the university to 6%. The Holocaust started, in my opinion, in November 1938, the year I was born, with the events of Kristallnacht or the Knights of the Broken Glass in English in the Third Reich after 
Germany annexed Austria in the spring of 1938. There are two lasting personal impacts that I can tell you about. I was born in January of 1938. Kristallnacht was organized an organized riot against the Jews in Germany and Austria. Hundreds of synagogues were burned, thousands of Jewish businesses were destroyed, and 30,000 Jews were deported to concentration camps. The worst atrocities took place in Berlin, the capital of Germany, and in Vienna, the capital of Austria. Vienna is only 125 miles from Budapest, where I was and my family was. The news of these events reached Budapest within days, if not hours. These events determined that I shall become a single child, something I always regretted. I was, I think, about 60 years old when I learned that my father forbade my mother to have any more children, telling her that, and I'm quote, we cannot bring another Jewish child into this world, end of quote. In retrospect, my father was right. I barely survived as a six-year-old child. Also, in 1942, when I was four years old, my father was conscripted into a Jewish labor battalion, and I never saw him again. He died in a concentration camp in Donnerskirchen, Austria, in January 1945, just before the camp was liberated. Wow. All right, uh, folks, we're going to our first break. Please stay with us. We'll come back uh, with Bob in just a minute. What a fascinating story. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. And I'd like to just take this uh, small opportunity to invite everyone that's listening and a veteran or non-veteran to Johns Creek, Georgia and Newtown Park, where... Last week, last Saturday, in fact, um, they unveiled the Afghanistan Monument. And that's also the location of the Vietnam Veterans Healing Wall. And that's the replica of the wall in Washington, D.C., with all the names of those that gave the ultimate sacrifice in Vietnam. Either way... Everything about Newtown Park and the, the memorials to veterans humbles any and everyone. And please take the time to go out there and see it. And I think uh, Mike Mozell has just done Mike Mozell has just done a wonderful job on the park. Newtown Park and uh, the Veteran Memorials. So take the time to do it. Take the time to take your kids. And I want to congratulate Pete and Bob because we keep touting the fact that stories like Bob's, you are our history books. Today, history has overlooked many, many, our history books that are in public schools have overlooked many, many things. And your story is so vitally important, Bob, and I thank you for coming on America's Web Radio. And with that being said, let's get back to Pete and Bob. It's all yours, Pete. All right. Thank you, David. Uh, we're back with the Holocaust survivor, Bob Draconi. Uh Bob, by 1944... You were six years old, which made it mandatory for you to wear the yellow star that identified you as Jewish. Tell us about your memories of the experience and what it meant to you, to you as a child. Well, 1944 was the year the Holocaust or the 
final solution, as the Germans called it, reached Hungary. In March of 1944, Germany invaded Hungary, and new anti-Semitic laws were passed. One of those laws were that all Jews six years and older had to wear a yellow star in public. As a six-year-old, I did not understand the significance of wearing a yellow star. My mother didn't explain to me why I had to wear it when I went out to the front of our building to play with my Christian friends. I think she just tried to protect me. Our naivety as children is best illustrated by my childhood Jewish friend. His name was Andy. He was not yet six years old in March of 1944, and he told his mother that he wanted to wear yellow stars just like I did. But his mother refused to sew one on his coat. Andy cried bitterly, neither of us understanding at that time that the yellow star made a difference between life and death in the ensuing months. Jeez. All right, Bob, let, we're, uh, so much of, of a great story. Uh, we're going to move on to what you call journey number two, growing up under communism. Describe how life was for you growing up in a working-class family under communism. Well, I grew up in very poor circumstances, way below what we define today in the U.S. as the poverty line. Without a father, my mother had to work as a manual laborer. She, uh, she didn't have but eight uh, years of education and no special skills. We had meat once a week, rarely had butter or eggs, and we lived in a two-room tiny apartment with no indoor plumbing. I never had a bicycle or a soccer ball to kick around. My mother never had enough money to make and to meet from paycheck to paycheck, and she constantly had to borrow money from her best friend. The Communist Party took total control of Hungary in 1948, when I was 10 years old. And as an adolescent, I was brainwashed with consistent propaganda about I'm going to quote, the exploitation of workers in the imperialist and capitalist West, end of quote, and the wonderful future of the working class under socialism and communism. It was many years later that I discovered a brilliant statement by Winston Churchill that I would like to quote. He said at a White House luncheon in 1954, quote, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. The inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of misery. My mother and I shared those miseries. You have to read chapter of my book to get a true understanding of life under a totalitarian communist dictatorship. That, that is a great quote. I, I remember that about Winston Churchill. Um, despite the tragedies you face as a child, you described your childhood as a happy one. What did you attribute to that happiness? Because my parents come from large families. My mother were 10 children. My father were nine. Enough of my uncles and aunts survived the Holocaust to provide a loving family environment for me as I grew up since I was the only orphan in the family without a father. In addition, I had my mother's unconditional love and I could see the many sacrifices she made to make my life easier. Also, I was a very social boy, made friends easily. I participated in all kinds of sports activities. Perhaps the only good thing I can say about the communist system is that they subsidized all sports and arts. It was almost free to attend the theater, the opera, or the symphony, and my mother encouraged me to take advantage of these opportunities. And most importantly, I always had a positive outlook toward the future, regardless of our economic circumstances. I never felt victimhood or had a chip on my shoulder. Everyone around me told me that I was smart, and if I study, I will become an engineer. And I believed it. 
So that's the answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> okay, of all the influential characters you described in your book, Bob, if you had to choose one who had the most effect on you, who would that be and why? If I had to pick one, it has to be my mother's older brother, Uncle Lati, a Holocaust survivor who became my role model. He provided the much-needed guidance during my teenage years. He chastised me when I got into trouble, constantly reminded me of my responsibilities to help my mother, and instilled in me an unquestionable desire to become an educated man. One of his favorite saying was, and I quote him, Robert, always remember that they can take everything away from you, but not your education. End of quote. He never defined what he meant by they, but I instinctively understood it. It could be the Nazis or the communists. He also taught me to be a decent man. I had to be both sensible and sensitive, something that I only understood much later in my life. Okay, you mentioned a mentor uh, of a rabbi. I'm sorry? The, the rabbi, Carlman, uh, you oh, mentioned him in your Yes, book. well, you asked, me, you asked me for only one. Uh, <laughs> was, uh, most influential, so I didn't want to talk about my rabbi, but I, I, we had a rabbi, we had a synagogue, you know, working-class neighborhood, a beautiful synagogue that's still there. And my rabbi uh, 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 had some influence on me. He, uh, when I was bar mitzvah, when I was 13 years old, he wrote me a letter as to how to grow up, how to be a man, how to be responsible. And, and I didn't quite understand all those things when I was 13, but I realized decades later that I that his words actually had a great influence on me. So he was another very influential person in my life. All right, very good. Uh, now, in 1956, you changed your last name from Reitman to Rotoni. What motivated you to do, and what were the short-term and long-term consequences of you changing your last name? Well, that is a great question, Pete. Let me explain. Just before my graduation from high school, the Hungarian government issued a proclamation to encourage people to Hungarianize their foreign names. There were many people in Hungary with foreign names. Virtually all Hungarians with German names were Jews. In anti-Semitic Hungary, it was easy to pick out a Jew just by his or her last name. And after graduation from high school, I wanted to blend into my new society at the university without letting everybody know that I'm Jewish before anyone could get to know me. So I consulted with my mother and she did not object to changing my name. The other reason I wanted to change my name is that Hungarian language is a phonetic language, and nobody could spell my German name Reichman. I always <laughs> had to spell it out as R-E-I-C-H-M-A-N-N. Changing my name to Ratoni, as we pronounce it in Hungarian, a well-known Hungarian name, I thought will result in never having to spell my name again. The short-term consequences of changing my name came only six months later when I escaped to Austria, where they speak German, and nobody could spell my new name, Rathony. The Austrian border guard, who was registering all the refugees at the border, asked for my name, and when I said Rathony, he looked up and asked, how do you spell it? So, so much for changing my name. Yeah, to a Hungarian name. The long-term consequences of Hungarianizing my name came in Canada and in the USA, where nobody can, nobody can spell Ratoni, and it is mispronounced as Ratoni. Therefore, everybody thinks that I'm Italian. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, your third journey. Is the Hungarian uprising against the communists in 1956. What was it like for you as a young college student to find yourself caught up in the middle of an uprising 
which quickly turned very violent. Uh, first, it was thrilling to have a taste of freedom when the uprising broke out on October 23, 1956. It was led by students at, from my university. Tens of, thousands, tens of thousands of students from several other universities in Budapest marched to the statue of a Polish general of the 1848 revolution that swept across Europe. We peacefully marched and handed out a sheet of paper with 16 student demands for reforming the communist system and demanding the withdrawal of the Russian forces from Hungary. We marched and sang patriotic Hungarian songs that were forbidden by the government. By late afternoon and evening, the crowd grew to over 100,000 people, perhaps even more. And we marched to the parliament and to the radio station to declare our 16-point demand over the public radio. And I'm happy to tell you, I've never experienced such feelings of elation, the freedom for the first time to sing and say what I wanted to and not be worried about being arrested. And that is when the shooting started and our march turned into a bloody riot. It happened at the radio station where the students were, some of the students were killed by the secret police trying to protect the radio station. Before I knew it, I had a gun in my hand. I frightened my mother when I showed up with a gun at home. I did not think her feelings and her shock of seeing me with a gun. It was only 12 years earlier and she was taken away at gunpoint from the very same apartment. I was ashamed of making her cry. Then I witnessed the hatred of the mob in lynching and burning the bodies of the enemy, the occupying Russian soldiers and the secret police that represented the iron fist of the communist leadership of our country. I saw again what I witnessed as a six-year-old child during the Holocaust, man's inhumanity against other men. It was sobering and made me question my own humanity. I learned then that revolutions are messy affairs and they leave a dark shadow over your head and a confusion of what is right and what is wrong. I realized how easy it is to cross that thin line that separates good from evil in our hearts. Wow. Okay, folks, we're going to our second break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Please stick with us for more of this fascinating story in life. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Holocaust survivor Bob Antoni. Uh, Bob, we're going to move on to journey number four. That is the escape. You decided to escape from Hungary in 1956. In hindsight, what do you think was the main reason behind this life-changing decision? And what was it for practical reasons or psychological reasons? Uh before answering your question, let me add some more information about the Hungarian uprising of October Yes, sir. Go ahead. Sure. The Russians were caught off guard and had to leave the country. And Hungary became a free country for about four weeks. I felt that I had a patriotic duty to join the revolutionaries 
to protect our country from the anticipated attack and reoccupation by the Russians, which did take place in late November. We were all naive, expecting American paratroopers drop down from the sky and to save us, since the Iron Curtain was broken. But it didn't happen. I later understood that President Eisenhower was preoccupied with the Suez Canal crisis. Now, let me go back to your question. My first reason to escape was the fear of retribution. I signed my name in a book when I picked up a gun at the local police station, and I feared for my safety and life. The radio announced amnesty for all students who participated in the uprising, but I didn't believe it. I did not want to end up in jail or in a Siberian gulag. Another reason to leave was the desire to live in a free society, something I have heard through the Voice of America and read, read about the West in books, forbidden books, that I was able to get hold of. But I never experienced freedom. And also, I must admit that escaping sounded like an interesting venture for an 18-year-old boy. <laughs> and finally, I heard that two of my lifelong friends successfully escaped, which gave me some courage to try it. I discussed the idea with my mother, and we agreed that I will try to escape first, and then, if I safely made it, she'll follow me. I didn't know that I will not see her again until seven years later in 1963, when I got married to my wife, Eva, in Montreal, Canada. Okay. Um, after you escaped from Hungary, we're moving on to number five, the immigrant years. After you escaped from Hungary, how difficult was it to find a new home and country and what were your options in terms of immigration, and how did you end up as U.S. and United States citizen? Well, in Hungary, I heard a lot about America through the Voice of America radio and Radio Free Europe. So America was the first destination for me when I got to Vienna. Unfortunately, by the time my friend Bill and I got to the American Embassy in late December 1956, we were told that the quota for Hungarian refugees was filled. I also went to the Israeli embassy where they were recruiting young Jewish boys. First, I didn't want, they didn't want to believe that I was Jewish because my Austrian refugee paper had a stamp on it and the stamp had a word Catholic on it. I threatened to drop my tent to prove that I'm Jewish. <laughs> and they finally agreed to talk to me. <laughs> they promised full tuition at the Technion, but first I would have to spend six months learning Hebrew and then serve two years in the Israeli Defense Forces before attending university. I didn't like the deal, and I didn't want to leave Bill, who had no reason to go to Israel as a Catholic boy. So I passed on Israel. Then we found out that three other countries were actively recruiting students, Australia, Sweden, and Canada. We struck Australia off the list very quickly because we heard that there were not enough women in Australia. <laughs> now, now, you have to remember, Pete, we were 18-year-old healthy boys full of testosterone. <laughs> Sweden looked attractive because we knew that they had beautiful blonde women there. Unfortunately, the Swedes wanted us to sign a 10-year contract to work in Sweden after graduating from college. This quid pro quo did not appeal to us, so Sweden was struck off our list. And that is how Bill and I ended up as immigrants in Canada in February 1957. Wow. Yeah, you write extensively about MIT. How did you end up at MIT? <laughs> Good question. This was purely unintended consequences of events in early 1961. I was about to finish four years of evening engineering studies at Sir George Williams University in Montreal and was looking forward to transfer to two years of daytime study at McGill University in the fall to get my engineering degree. 
Now, I could have gone to day school in 1957, but in order to bring my mother up, I had to work and take financial responsibility for her. So I enrolled in this engineering school where I met another friend of mine. His name was Peter Chakan at Sir George, the school that we went to, who was also a Hungarian immigrant. For four years, Peter and I studied together and helped each other translating the textbooks and homework assignments when our English was still poor, particularly during the first year, as I said. Then, out of sheer curiosity, in the spring of 1961, Peter and I asked our physics professor, which are the best engineering universities in the United States, we asked. He said, MIT and Caltech, neither of which we ever heard of. But as a bravado, Peter and I decided to invest $10 to send our transcript to MIT in the spring of 1961, and then completely forgot about it. In July, we both received a letter from MIT telling us that we were accepted as juniors. I became very proud. I felt that my heretofore brilliance is finally recognized and threw the letter in the wastebasket. I never seriously considered going to MIT. Tuition was $750 a semester, and I had $1,000 saved during the last four years, sufficient for the next two years at McGill University to get my engineering diploma. But fate intervened again. My future father-in-law was visiting in Montreal from New York, and I told him about the MIT acceptance. He got more excited than I was. He implored me to at least go to MIT and talk to them. He even offered to give Peter and I a ride in his two-door red 1960 Corvair. We had no idea that Cambridge, Massachusetts is a 200-mile detour from New York. We have never been in the U.S. before. But we went and met with the admission officer, and he assured us that nobody, and I'm quoting, I still remember what he said, said that nobody ever left MIT because they could not afford it, end of quote. We were told that we can get a loan and scholarship if we got a 3.5 average for the semester. Let me just finish this story by telling you that this was the most difficult, nerve-wracking 10 hours train ride home to Montreal. <laughs> there was no way we could rationalize the risk of going to MIT and compete with the smartest kids in the world against the assured scholarship to McGill University in Montreal. At the end, I told Peter in not so many nice words, the heck with it. Let us risk it. And that is how we ended up at MIT. <laughs> you're, uh, uh, I want to get to this. Your relationship with your wife, Eva, is an aspiring love story. Could you tell us how you two met and what you made, uh, what made you decide to follow her after years of lost contact? Well, I knew you were going to ask this kind of a question, so I'm well prepared. <laughs> we met on a blind date in Montreal, probably in 1959. Neither of us remember exactly when we met. I was working during the day and went to school at night. I was doing a favor for a friend of mine. He asked me to join him on a blind date. What upset me after the date was that this friend of mine did not share with me the information that my blind date, Eva, was not even 16 years old. At the age of 21, I considered myself a mature man, and dating a minor was beneath me. So it was not love at first sight. But we started seeing each other, and I surprised her with 16 red roses on her 16th birthday party. That guaranteed immediate acceptance by her parents, <laughs> as you can imagine. I discovered that Eve and I had a lot of common background. She was very smart, and our relationship grew as we got to know each other better. Then we got separated in 1961 when she finished high school in Montreal and followed her parents to the USA and started studying at Hunter College in New York. At the same time, 
I went to Cambridge to continue my studies at MIT. We saw each other a few times between 1961 and 1963 when I finally decided to propose to her when I started graduate school at MIT. I think I came to the conclusion that this is a girl that I want to spend the rest of my life with as a husband, as a friend, oh, that's okay. and as the father of our children. We are going to celebrate our 58th anniversary this August. You know, when you go to YouTube, they show you... Congratulations, that are standard. Thank you. Congratulations. Now, Eva, Eva is also a Holocaust survivor. Is she planning to write a book, maybe? Uh, unfortunately, no. Huh? She was just a baby and has no recollection of the Holocaust or the war. But her family's survival... Oh, I get so busy sitting. All right. Folks, I hope you're still with us. We had a power outage at the station. Went down for about five, five, almost ten minutes. But uh, we're back online here. Um, I'm with Holocaust survivor Bob Rattoni. Bob, uh... <sighs> I think this is an important question. You've made several presentations to students. What, what has been their response? It's not tender. That's, that was the uh, air conditioner. Pete, let me answer your question by reading uh, one, uh, one of the many, many letters that I have gotten from students I spoke to. Here's one from January 2018. It says, Dear Mr. Robert Rotonia, Thank you so much for taking time out of your day in order to tell our class childhood, your childhood story. Your description of the events you experienced while living in Hungary broadened my knowledge me, to make me more educated. Hearing you speak was a truly life-changing uh, what's, experience. What's computer? I just came out of that room feeling privileged to be able to live now and where I do. I spoke with my family about your story once I left, and they felt inspired as well. Thank you for feeling open enough with us to let us into this delicate portion of your life. The way you spoke made me remember the gravity to which World War II and the Holocaust changed millions of lives. Thanks to your gift, I was trying to create a better place to live and never stand by during injustice. Thank you so much. We love Sumia Belanchi. This was a high school girl from Westminster. So that's my answer to your question. I, I could not have thought of a better answer than it has a great yet a letter from a young student. Uh, which brings me to this question. Uh, these are very challenging times in America right now. Are you concerned in any way that there may be a rise in anti-Semitism? Definitely. I lived in America for 60 years. The emergence of open anti-Semitism feels to me like deja vu, reminding me what I used to experience in Hungary. The rise of anti-Semitism in academia, social media, and in our government. Movements like BLM is frightening. I blame the progressive left and the woke generation for trying to destroy our country. That's how I feel. Very, very well put. Uh, thank you, sir, for that. Now, Bob, you've seen life, what life is like under many forms of government. Give me your thoughts on America and the freedoms we enjoy, sir, and you have the floor. The ball is yours. Uh, it's going to be very brief, Pete. I truly believe that this country is an exceptional country. It is inhabited by the same human beings as any other country. But we have two documents I fell in love with, the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, both aspirational documents that no other country in the world has. As an immigrant, I would have never been able to assimilate fully as a French, German, or a British citizen, except for not qualifying for the presidency, something I regret. <laughs> this is one of the very few immigrant countries where you can reach your goals without cheating, lying, and stealing, something I am proud of having achieved. I just hope that it is not too late to change the current social, economic, and political trends 
and that my grandchildren will enjoy the same freedoms and opportunities I had over the past 50 years. Well, good statement. I think we're all very, very concerned about that. Um, 67. Sort of an off-the-wall question, Bob. Under communism, there's been students I've heard on TV and radio that they're they're praising socialism and communism. Uh, Is it because they've been taught it? I know they haven't experienced it. Uh, what, What do you have to say about that, the way our generations are embracing socialism and communism, what you went through and detested, and also fascism? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, most uh, I'm sure most Americans, unless you're in academia or uh, maybe you were in, in a soldier and fought against uh, one of these regimes, don't know what socialism and communism is, and uh, and they have no idea. And uh, it looks socialism looks very uh, enticing when the government uh, divides gives you a lot of things that are free, free education, uh, free health care, subsidies to almost everything. People don't understand there is no such a thing as a free lunch. And there is no such a thing as free that the government can give you. And the government that's made up of uh, uh, politicians and academia and so forth, really, in a big country like ours, with 340 million people and so varied and diverse, there's no way they can plan uh, how to how to provide a decent life to the country. Socialism will never provide equal opportunity. They want to provide equal uh, results, and that's what you hear today on on, uh, on radio and television uh, when they see demand for. Uh, equality, diversification, and inclusion. They and I talk about. I met very educated people who, and look at big corporations. They are now hiring consultants to teach them about uh, equity, diversion, and inclusion, which is a bunch of nonsense. Uh, there is no such thing as equity. There should be equal opportunity that needs to be provided, and socialism and communism does not do that. So that's just my off-the-cuff response to your question. And I'm like very, 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 very afraid of what's going on right now. And I just hope that uh, we come to our senses before it's too late. I also learned, Pete, just quickly, that it doesn't take long to take a free country and make turn it into a, a, a socialist or communist country. I witnessed it. It happened in Hungary between 1945 when Hungary was a parliamentary and relatively free country to 1948, when the communists finally managed to take over the country. It only took three years. Uh Uh-huh. And I know that during the Russian Revolution in 19, what was that, 1918? uh, Lenin didn't have that many supporters behind him, but they took over the key points of the country, which were the rail yards and the radio stations. Which exactly. now is which now is the internet and computers. Um, That's right. You, you live a fascinating life, uh, Bob. Let me ask you this: Your escape from Hungary was dangerous. Uh, yet you were caught humor during the escape. Tell us about that. Well, once I decided to escape, I went to see one of my close friends, Bill Fodor, and asked him if he wants to join me. He agreed without any hesitation, which gave me some courage to go ahead. Our escape plan was very simple. We were going to start out in the dark hours on December 6, 1956, and make it to the train station in Budapest and catch the next train to the largest city near the Austrian border. After that, we figured we'll find a way to go to a small village at the border and somehow find our way across a big swamp that separated Hungary from Austria in that particular place. We each took a bottle of vodka and a carton of cigarettes in our briefcases to barter our way through in case we run into Russian or Hungarian border guards who are already sealed the border because I left rather late. That's why I missed the uh, uh, getting to America. 
at four o'clock in the morning, Bill was supposed to show up at our house with a friend of his and his truck to take us to the train station. And that is when I had the shocking surprise. In addition to Bill, two young women in their early 20s showed up and wanted to join us. Then a mother and her eight-year-old child showed up also wishing to join us to cross into Austria. The last uninvited guest was a young boy about our age who also heard of our, quote, secret, quote, plan to escape. (laughs) (laughs) Then all of of a sudden, there were eight of us and uh, or seven, I forget now, you add it up. And Bill and I were supposed to lead this group safely across the border. I found it ironic that three young women better equipped to barter with the border guard for safe crossing than Bill and I. Need, they needed us to 18-year-olds for protection. <laughs> uh, it was years later that I learned that it was my mother who leaked our plans to escape. And that's how it oh, was going wrong. But we did make it to the border and soon discovered a well-organized smuggling operation helping Hungarians to escape for a fee. The final miles before we got to the border were chaotic and I got separated from my group. In late evening, I found myself alone with about 10 other Hungarians in a house of a peasant family whose son was uh, the official guide to take us across the swamp into into Austria. I was in panic, having separated from Bill and feeling guilty that I failed as a group leader to provide safety for everyone. I asked my guide to look for Bill Fodor in the village and gave him half the little money I had on me. The guy returned in about an hour, smelling of alcohol, and told me that nobody heard of my friend. So I figured he'd probably spend my money at the local tavern. But then he collected money from everyone else as his fee to take the group across the border. He offered me a deal after I told him that I didn't have enough money to pay him. A young couple in our group had two small children with them, a boy and a girl. The guy asked me to carry the girl in lieu of payment, which I gladly accepted. And around midnight, in freezing weather and in pitch dark, we started our journey in single line, me with a six-year-old girl sitting on my shoulders, her legs dangling on my chest, and her arms around my chin. It took about an hour and a half across the trail of only a few feet wide. The guide instructed us not to speak a word, and if we heard any voices or saw any lights, to hit the ground as we wait and wait. As we walked, the little girl got heavier and heavier, and I was <laughs> thankful for all the training I had as a track and field distance runner. So I knew I was used to pain, and I was just focusing, putting one foot in front of the other, and went on. The content of my bottle of vodka gradually ended up in my stomach by the time we reached the border. <laughs> What I never felt is suddenly the guy stopped us and told us that the Austrian border was hey, another we need 20 a break. meters ahead. He turned around and disappeared in the dark on his way back. Frankly, I was suspicious that this was a trap and we were nowhere near the border. But he was right. And in about 15 minutes, we heard a loud voice saying, halt. And we knew we were in Austria. I still think about this six-year-old girl I carried. I hope she's still alive someplace in this world and told her grandchildren how an 18-year-old boy carried her to freedom. Luckily, I reconnected with Bill and the others in a small Austrian border village, and we all made our way to Vienna in a week or so to search for our new country. Wow. What a story. That's the... That's uh, okay. I want to go back to one thing you mentioned. Hey, we need to... Uh, communism, uh, the, the word brainwashing, or brainwash, is used quite a bit, Bob. Uh, I know that about communism, but... Hey, we need to take a break. Brainwashed by a communist-type dictatorship, uh, was it like the voice of America that got you to start accepting a different version of life than politics? Yeah, that's an excellent question, uh, Pete. That was certainly one, because listening, certainly you have to do that at night with the windows shades down and very quiet so that nobody could hear you. Otherwise, you would be deported to the 
secret police, and that would be the end of it. But I did listen to Voice of America, and I also have some books that were uh, not allowed that were not allowed uh, in Hungary. Uh, there was uh, what's the word I'm looking for is uh, uh, censorship of any mm-hmm. Western material. No movies made in the West or books that uh, spoke about talked about the West were allowed. But my mother had a friend, Mrs. Klein, who was very educated, spoke several languages, and she had a great library of books. And she encouraged me to read some books uh, in Hungarian, of course, because I that was the only language other than Russian that we that I knew. And so I read a lot. I was a, I still am a great reader of books, and I learned through these books, through Voice of America, and then maybe my uncle Lutzi. Uh, and a few other uh, uh, members of my close family, that there was a there was a totally different life in the West, and there was freedom. So I understood a little bit of what freedom was, but I really didn't understand it because I didn't experience it. I only heard about it, and luckily, uh, and I had to. I realized how we lived, and I realized that uh, instead of the wonderful life that communism offered to everybody, the classless society, that we actually ended up with a society that had its own classes. The upper classes were the politicians, the Politburo, the people who ran the country, and the secret police that had the power to keep them in place. And they enjoyed all the benefits that you can get on the West. They had cars, they had beautiful apartments, they had food, they had clothing, they had money. And the rest of the world, the rest of the society, had nothing. So that's how I learned, and that's what inspired me to take the chance and escape and leave the communist system behind. I think everybody in America needs to listen to that last statement. Uh, Bob, that we have people in this country who were born and raised here who say that the American flag is a symbol of hate, but yet the Cuban people... Uh, right now, are protesting for their freedom, and, and what flag are they waving, Bob? They're waving the American flag. The, the American flag. Our, our politicians in Washington somehow don't watch these uh, shows and don't understand it, unfortunately, except a few of them, of course. Most of them are conservative, and most of them are Republican. Yeah. Pete, All right, I understand. Pete, we're uh, Bob, have got to go, but... Let me, uh, Pete. Let me, Pete. Let me interrupt you a second, okay? One point that one point that Bob brought up is the infiltration, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's the Chinese have a standing army in the United States. Our universities and schools across the country have been infiltrated. There are over 125,000 communist Chinese teaching classes to our kids and that's everything from grade school up to doctorates 125,000 can I give you a quick quick comment on this uh, sure because this is fairly recent Uh, I graduated from MIT and uh, gave MIT a lot of money and we set up an endowment for a scholarship a couple of years ago then a year ago I decided to study the population of MIT's graduate and undergraduate student body. And I discovered that during the past 20 years, the Chinese student body grew 300% in two decades. And, and I started asking questions uh, from MIT. How did this happen? How did the Chinese students suddenly became so smart? that they tripled the number of Chinese students at MIT, one of the most prestigious, technically advanced, sophisticated universities where many of our secrets are developed in technology. Okay, and we're, we're going to have to drop it. For a response. But, but I just wanted to know that I'm very familiar with what you just said. And scary thought, isn't it? Scary thought, exactly. That's that's basically a standing army that can be called to duty any time within. Okay, with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Pete, another great show. Bob, I enjoyed meeting you, and I thoroughly want to talk to you. One question Pete asked, I'd like to answer, is where you can find my book. 
My book is available in paperback from Amazon and Barnes and Noble and even Walmart and okay. uh, anywhere. Well, Bob, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to have Pete give me your telephone number, and I'll be calling you in the very near future. And uh, sure. we thank you it's for pleasure to talk to you. We thank you for being on, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. It's been a veteran story with our great host, Pete Mecca. We'll be back next week with more. Stay tuned for more entertainment. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.